Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. Season 7 of Jury Duty focuses on two sexual assault trials, the trials of Harvey Weinstein and Danny Masterson. On today's episode, we hear from our correspondent, Molly Miller, and her conversation with New York Times correspondent, Lauren Hurstick, about the last days of the Weinstein trial. That's all coming up right after the break. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. We begin today's installment with part two of the chat between jury duty correspondent Molly Miller and New York Times correspondent Lauren Hurstick about the last days of the Los Angeles trial of Harvey Weinstein before the jury began their deliberations. So then we have the prosecution's rebuttal. And who gives rebuttal for the prosecution? Thompson gave the rebuttal. And I think throughout, he's been the stronger of the two prosecutors. He's a confident speaker. He's he's a very compassionate interrogator. I think he's just, he's very likable and he can command a room. I think his rebuttal was really strong. He was confident, dripping in sarcasm at some points, and their tactic there, which I think honestly, the defense really teed him up for that, was to highlight these contradictions and inconsistencies in the defense that, you know, because some of the initial statements were made such a long time ago, you might not have put together that they've contradicted themselves throughout. You know, he would bring up claims that were made in the opening statements and then contrast those with arguments that were made weeks later. For example, they tried to argue that Jane Doe 2's interaction was consensual at one point. Later on, even in closings, they said it didn't happen at all. So, you know, you kind of got to pick one. Either it happened and it was consensual or it didn't happen. You can't consent to something that didn't happen. Right. And Jane Doe, too, we're talking about Lauren Young. That was the aspiring screenwriter and model. And she was the one who was allegedly trapped in the bathroom with Harvey Weinstein by Claudia Salinas. Yes. And the defense made a lot out of her claim that there was a sliding door in the bathroom and then pulling up a photo of a bathroom with no sliding door so that her very visual memory of Claudia Salinas smiling demonically as she closed slides the door closed, locking Jane Doe 2 in the room with her monster. They tried to argue that that was not possible. But I think Thompson made a lot of valid points and was very convincing in uh, rebutting that idea that the meat of her recounting of the experience is consistent with everyone else's and she's pretty clear on what happened. Did anything else stick with you from the prosecution's rebuttal? I think maybe where he was the strongest was in distilling these ideas into very digestible analogies. His opening one maybe was a little shaky. He delivered this whole story about a potato chip delivery man Mm -hmm. um, to illustrate that 
it is possible to come to a conclusion beyond a reasonable doubt, basically giving this example that if you have a potato chip delivery man who arrives at the supermarket to make his delivery, one person describes what they saw on a Monday that he had chips, he was in a truck that said chips, and he went into the store and didn't have chips anymore after And then he says, another person describes the same thing the following week. A third person describes the same thing the week after that, that we can all agree that it's almost certain that this guy is a potato chip delivery man. A little shaky. He found his footing a little bit more later, arguing the idea that it's absurd to say that these women could not have been victims based on their social media postings, that that's not in line with victim behavior. He got a couple of laughs when he pointed out that social media is entirely built on lies, that it exists for you to show that your life is better than it is and to make your followers jealous of this life that you have constructed. He's trying to say that there's no there there if you're going to use these women's social media posts, you know, photos that have been taken out of order from previous nights, previous time. There's no way to use a social media timeline to prove that someone's behavior was one way or another at the time of posting. He used a good metaphor that got some laughs about if you take your kids to Disneyland, they're going to cry, but you're not going to post any photos of your kids crying at Disneyland. That one definitely landed pretty well. So overall, you think a pretty strong rebuttal. And the media has been critical. I've been critical of Thompson and his approach to this entire case, mostly his tone. He seemed a little disorganized over the course of the trial. And then we've been missing this righteous anger that I think a trial like this really calls for. But it sounds like he might have stepped up to the plate here. Is that your assessment? He really did. I think his energy was different in the rebuttal than maybe it has been throughout. Or it's just that it contrasted with Martinez. He was just so much more confident, really. And I think I do think that with the defense's meandering four hour long walk through this forest, they really did drop a lot of content for him to work with. There was there was a lot there for him to pick apart. My dad is a lawyer, and he always tells me that you should say as little as possible, because the more you say, the more your opponent can pick apart and screw you over on. And not that I can say I know better than Harvey Weinstein's extremely expensive lawyers, but uh, spent a long time saying a lot of things that were pretty powerfully challenged in not a lot of time during rebuttal. Wow. So obviously, Harvey Weinstein is sitting through all of these closing arguments. Did he have any visible reactions? Yeah, there were a couple of times where during prosecution's closing, where they reminded us of some of these women's claims and testimony that, you know, Harvey would shake his head. Maybe you could almost see him whispering, that's not what happened. It wasn't like that, particularly recounting Jane Doe for Jennifer Newsom's claims regarding her situation. And then there were other times that he laughed or nodded his head. Jackson, in his closing for the defense, spent a lot of time on Jane Doe 2, Lauren Young's dress. She claimed that he very quickly stripped her from the shoulders down, got her dress around her waist. And Jackson pulled up a photo of the dress with this 
smoking gun that it had a button on the back of the neck and that it would be nearly impossible to get that button undone. Harvey laughed there. Yes, it would be challenging. However, that set up Thompson in rebuttal to say something along the lines of, you know, this man can manage a multi-million dollar company and you're telling me that he can't handle a button. So then any visible reactions from the jury? I know that they have masks on, or at least a significant portion of them do, but any head nodding, chuckling, any of that? Yeah, you know, I think they were more expressive than they've been all along. I guess maybe it's just been so long. We got less masks on the face. I think people are just like, ugh, whatever. We're friends now. We're letting it all out there. At one point, actually, in closing on day one for the prosecution, Martinez made an analogy having to do with the women's behavior again after the assaults that they weren't what you'd expect from a victim with Jane Doe one it was questioning that she would go to a red carpet and take photos and appear beautiful and happy and so Martinez pointed out that that is her job she's a model that's what she came here to do was appear on the red carpet And she appealed specifically to the women on the jury and noted that there are far fewer women than men. And she made the analogy of how many times have you had terrible cramps and have to go into work and just get through it or have a family member die and have to go to work and just get through it or be pregnant and have to go to work and just get through it and oftentimes keep it a secret because it's taboo to talk about your pregnancy at work in the first trimester or really ever if you're trying to not get fired. (laughs) And that got a lot of nods of appreciation from the women on the jury. And then at the same time, you know, Jackson, he really did remember moments from the trial that maybe were a little prickly for the jury. He brought up over and over again, Natasha M's recounting of her first meeting with Harvey, where her description of him was a fat fucking pig. He continually reminded them that that's how these women looked at Harvey as a fat fucking pig. And that definitely offended some of them. You could see it in their eyes. So in closing, I'm going to wrap up here, but I want to know what was your overall assessment of these closing arguments? You know, I think from from the beginning, just laying the two sides out, I did feel like maybe the defense at least presented more effectively. That has a lot to do with Jackson's presentation style versus Martinez. But I was really surprised at how well Thompson did in the rebuttal. He was confident. He made really solid points. And for anyone who is at least inclined to believe the women, I think he did really seal the deal on at least two, if not three, of the Jane Doe's. And my guess for how this could go, I think that the jury is likely to convict on the charges related to Jane Doe 1 and Jane Doe 2. I think 3 and 4 are a little more up in the air, just based on what the evidence is having to do with them, what the charges actually are, and whether they're provable Right. And provable beyond a reasonable doubt. Exactly. Fascinating. Any final thoughts? It's just been, it's been a long and enlightening trial. I think it really puts into context just having a trial with such a volume of witnesses all 
saying the same thing over and over and over again just really hammers home exactly what happened here and kind of what we all knew was going on with Harvey Weinstein for all this time, what came out, you know, five years ago and what people have been reckoning with ever since. I think that was all thrown into stark relief over the course of the last seven weeks. Absolutely. The pattern is really striking and upsetting and and depressing. And we will see how this all turns out. But thank you so much for speaking with me, Lauren, and for sharing your thoughts on this trial with all of us. It's been such a pleasure to hear your perspective. Yeah, anytime. It's nice to do it. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We now move on to a conversation between Molly Miller and myself, where I offer Molly an opportunity to reflect on some of the larger themes and experiences that she's had in observing the Weinstein and the Masterson trials. Molly Miller, thanks for joining us again. It's a delight to be here, Carrie. And thanks for these fantastic conversations with Lauren Herstick. I thought that you guys covered the Weinstein case with such specificity and such interesting perspectives. And since you and I and Brittany have been following the Weinstein and Masterson cases in tandem, I'd love to hear your take on the way that the hung jury in the Masterson trial, and particularly the way that that jury hung 10 to 2, 8 to 4, and 7 to 5 for acquittal, how those splits affect your expectations for the Weinstein jury verdict? Wow. So honestly, I'm in shock about the Masterson hung jury. Now, granted, I wasn't in the room and I know that the specter of Scientology may have muddied the waters in that case. But overall, prior to deliberations, I thought of the two trials, Masterson's was more likely to end in a conviction. So given that context, I'm feeling a little shakier about my predictions about the Weinstein trial. Like Lauren Herstick, I think that the evidence is most compelling for Jane Doe 1, the Italian model and talk show host, and for Jane Doe 2, who has identified herself as Lauren Young. The other Jane Doe's had a murkier relationship with Weinstein after he allegedly assaulted them, and I could see that swaying the jury to find Weinstein not guilty of the charges associated with them. But the one thing I do think we sometimes forget when we get bogged down in the details of this case is simply that the defendant is Harvey Weinstein, a man whose name is at this point nearly synonymous with sexual harassment and assault, and... The defense has done their best to erase that association from the jury's minds, but I really think it would be naive to say that the jurors are going to view this case entirely in a vacuum. So we'll see what happens. My best personal guess is that the jury is going to convict Weinstein, at least on charges associated with Jane Doe 1. And ultimately, that may simply be because they don't feel comfortable acquitting Harvey Weinstein on all charges. 
The other thing about Masterson, as I've reflected on it, is that it's very difficult to get 12 people, and in this case, it was very difficult to get even five people, to see charges from 20 years ago of a very specific crime of forcible rape, to see Masterson's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And I think that, particularly in the case of Jane Doe 1 in the Weinstein trial, it may be much easier to get not just a consensus, but a unanimous agreement that that one case is clear enough that all 12 jurors could agree upon Weinstein's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. I agree. We're talking about an alleged assault that happened in 2013. So this isn't 20 years ago. And I think that the emotion that Jane Doe 1 brought to the stand was palpable. Her story was very simple and very clear. Her relationship with Weinstein, as I've said before, was very simple and very clear. She barely knew him before the alleged assault, and she did not have contact with him after the alleged assault. So... There's just so little for this woman to gain by standing up and accusing Harvey Weinstein of sexual assault. And I think that it's very likely the jury will convict on charges associated with her. I'd like to broaden out the subject a bit. Going back to 2019, you've written and reported a number of pieces about the way that the criminal legal process handles matters of sexual assault and abuse. And listeners, you can find links to Molly's articles in the post related to this jury duty episode at crimestory.com and on our Patreon page. But Molly, I want to return to how you're following the trials of Harvey Weinstein and Danny Masterson has impacted the way that you perceive the way that the process deals with these matters and the individuals involved in them? It's been an evolution. So the one constant observation I have about these trials is that the women and the men who have to take the stand and testify in front of their alleged abuser go through hell. These individuals have to recount their sexual assault in graphic detail in front of a full room of strangers for the prosecution. And then they have to have their character and their honesty brutally interrogated by the defense. It's a horrific experience, I'm sure, to have and, and to even watch. And in the beginning, my perspective honestly was that if someone was willing to get up on the stand and go through that hell, it meant that they were telling the truth about their assault and that the defendant ought to be automatically convicted. Now, my understanding of the criminal legal process is a lot more nuanced at this point. And I understand that although it might be uncomfortable, two things can be true. One, individuals who testify against their alleged sexual abusers go through a harrowing emotional experience. And two, every person who is charged with a crime in this country, no matter what that crime may be, has the right to due process. And part of that due process is that they have the right to be tried by a jury of their peers. And in a criminal case, the jury must find them guilty beyond a reasonable doubt in order to convict. So the mere fact that a person, in these cases women, testified against their abusers in a sexual assault trial cannot automatically mean that the defendants face a conviction. The content of their testimony is important. Their emotions during their testimony is important. Other evidence, of course, is important. And all of that is what the jury has to consider in their deliberations. But having said all that, I do draw a distinction between my personal perspective when it comes to sexual assault allegations and my legal perspective. 
perspective. So generally in my life, if I encounter a woman who claims she was raped or sexually assaulted, then I'm inclined to believe her if the claim is reasonable. So that's my personal perspective. No one's freedom is on the line at that point. Maybe someone's reputation, but not their freedom. But my legal perspective is the standard of proof I would have to have if I was on a jury. If I was part of a panel charged with determining guilt or innocence of a defendant. And that has to be beyond a reasonable doubt because it's not just a court of public opinion. That's a court of law. Molly Miller, thank you so much for all of your work on this trial. And I'm looking forward to hearing your coverage of the verdict and hopefully we'll get it fairly soon. I hope so too. I'm looking forward to it as well. And with that, we conclude this episode of Jury Duty, The Trials of Weinstein and Masterson. Subscribe or follow this Jury Duty podcast for updates as we await the jury's verdict. Also, if you would like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You can find more information about these trials on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. This episode was reported and written by Molly Miller. It was co-produced and edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trials of Weinstein and Masterson.